Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. While doing this podcast, is it for good? Are these the powers of evil who have us transmitting these devices? I do not know, but it is exhausting. Thank you, Jason. (laughs) Jason's going to bring all of his energy to this film that he's so enthused to talk about. And how could you not be? Speaking of energy, that's really the the key word to describe this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely not upbeat. I will be talking for an hour and a half. And you will do talking for an hour and a half, but only if it is the same conversation for the same hour and a half. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, I hope that we can bring more energy to the podcast, maybe than the characters bring to this film. And what is this film? Well, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1987. And we're here at our Cannes Film Festival episode, which often finds us talking about slow European art films that don't appeal to Jason. And that is what we've got here. The Palme d'Or winner from Cannes. It is Under the Sun of Satan from French filmmaker Maurice Piollat, starring Gérard Depardieu, who we've uh, we've discussed before, actually, and uh, Sandrine Bonaire, both of whom were longtime collaborators with Maurice Piollat. It is based on the novel by Georges Bernanos, a famous French writer, and uh, the novel from 1926. And yeah, it's it's slow. <laughs> it's a slow contemplative drama about a priest played by Gerard Depardieu who's having a crisis of faith of some kind. He's tempted by Satan. He's trying to help a young lady who is uh, a bit out of control, played by Sandrine Bonaire, and. Um, there's a lot of talk about theological concepts in this film. I think we could take the rest of the show off, Josh. You just you just did the whole show for us. <laughs> I hope you have something to say about this movie, Jason. I can't do it all on my own. George Bernanos, uh, as you said, this is a based on his 1926 novel, the third time a Bernanos book was adapted to film. The two previous adaptations, Diary of a Country Priest and Mouchette, uh, were both directed by Robert Bresson. How did you like that, Josh? Good job. Yeah, yeah. And Bresson, another very, very austere French filmmaker. And I've only seen, I think, one other Bresson film and not one of those that's a Bernanos adaptation. But this definitely put me in mind of of Bresson as well. I mean, you know, it's a certain kind of style that uh, doesn't work for everyone. So this was the first... um... French film to win the Palme d'Or in 21 years, uh, 1966, A Man and a Woman uh, by Claude Lelouc. And uh, when this won, a lot of people booed and uh, hissed because they thought Wings of Desire, the Vim Benders movie, was going to win. And Piolot said, if you don't like me, I don't like you either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. I do enjoy the the sort of contentiousness of can and of course wings of desire has gone on to be a beloved classic and this not so much although plenty of people do love this movie and pila himself is a major french filmmaker so it's not like this is just a piece of garbage that everyone hates but certainly wings of desire is 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 way up there in terms of you know acclaim and and people's interest and maybe we'll get to it as a bonus episode and instead of talking like this joss i can talk like this well, I sure do look forward to that. <laughs> yeah, not my best work, I agree. Sprocken the film history. Uh-huh. You think this movie is slow and dreamy. Wait if you watch Wings of Desire, man. Uh, <laughs> I was not a fan of either of those films, honestly. <laughs> they could really both win the Palm I, I mean, I would like to know what you would have voted for on the uh, 87 jury. Had you been a jury member at Cannes in 1987 as a like seven-year-old child, what would have been your pick? Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. I, other than Wings of Desire, because as you said, people wanted that to win. I, I don't recall what else was on the docket that year. I didn't look it up in terms of competition, even if it's anything else that I've actually seen. Certainly nothing else that I saw when I was seven years old. 
But well, the jury president was Yves Montagne, so you know he's a he's a Frenchie. So uh, he sure is. Uh, <laughs> Jersey Skolominski was on the uh, was on the uh, Skolomowski. Sorry, was on the uh, was on the jury, and we know uh, you know he, he, a lot of his uh, movies are uh, not the happiest either. True. True. Norman Mailer on the jury. A lot of big names there on the jury who liked this film. So maybe we should give them the benefit of the doubt and attempt to engage with this film. I watched it and I will not give them the benefit of the doubt, Josh. So I too watched it. That was really uh, an excellent start to the podcast. So you got Barfly by Barbe Schroeder. You have Aria with our friends uh, Robert Altman and Bruce Beresford. You got a uh, Paul Newman movie, The Glass Menagerie, which, um, you know, obviously they wrote a play about it after the movie. That's uh, definitely how that went. Yeah. And then Stephen Freer's Prick Up Your Ears. Those are kind of just looking at it quickly. The ones that I recognize from the in-feature competitions. Well, this was fascinating. I haven't seen any of those films, so I cannot answer your question. I mean, Josh, you've had since the age of seven to watch these. What have you been doing with your life? I'm sorry. I was busy watching um, Nightmare on Elm Street movies or something, probably. So I didn't get to those. But someday, perhaps I will. I did see Wings of Desire. Peter Greenaway had a movie. So I feel like all of these guys are just like, you, uh, I mean, a lot of these are just like, they seem like really downtrodden films. Yeah, well, you know, can picks often difficult dramas uh, in competition there. But those are major filmmakers. So uh, it makes sense that they'd be here. And again, Pilaw himself was also a major filmmaker, even if this movie in particular wasn't necessarily everyone's favorite. He had been a major filmmaker in France since sort of the later French New Wave era. So it makes sense that he'd be in competition at Cannes and that he would have a chance to win the Palme d'Or. I'm in Cannes, but screw you! And and I appreciate that attitude, right? I mean, that's that's part of what's enjoyable about Cannes is that the audience will boo and the filmmaker says, I don't like you. And it's it's great. It's passion for film. Or it will get a 20 minute standing ovation for like, you know, Clerks 3 or something like that. That too. That too. Uh, <laughs> Talk about a downtrodden film. That That is. I'm <laughs> glad we're not talking about Clerks 3. This movie also played at the Toronto International Film Festival and the New York Film Festival. And uh, despite that divisive uh, response at Cannes, it was also nominated for seven César Awards, which is the French sort of equivalent of the Oscar, including Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor for Gérard Depardieu, Best Actress for Sandrine Bonaire, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, and Best Poster, which is not a category Mm. we have at the Oscars, but maybe we should. Or Um, maybe even at the technical Oscars, we can show, uh, you know, the the montage of all the winners of the ones they won't show on TV, and Best Poster could be part of that. Yeah, I'm I'm all for that. Anyway, it won none of those awards, but it did get all the nominations. (laughs) It was also named the Best Film of 1987 by Jason's favorite publication, Cahiers du Cinema. Mm. That is when I had to resign over my differences (laughs) with them on this pick. Yeah, fair enough. It grossed apparently $68,765 in the United States, which is not a lot of money, but really the fact that it grossed any amount of money in the United States is kind of impressive for a movie like this in 1987. I couldn't find any... Gonna um, disagree with you. It was, uh, you know, can winner. I feel like that's an automatic built-in audience of cinephiles who are gonna go like, I gotta go see it, one can. It's gonna be great. I suppose that's true. So that that's that's where every one of those dollars came yeah. from was from people like that. Yeah, it's my American accent now, Josh. <laughs> you're, somehow you're not even good at doing an American yeah. accent. <laughs> All the Americans who go to see the can winners are just like uh, crusty old New York cab drivers in my mind. Hey, I don't want to go work this ship. Give me a donut and I'm going to go watch this French movie. <laughs> that's perfect. Um. There is a figure, however, apparently 815,748 admissions or tickets sold in France. I don't know how that translates financially, but uh, maybe it was a successful film. Who's to say? I mean, it is a successful film. We're talking about it all these years later on Awesome Movie Year, the number 37 podcast in all of my queue for listening to. Yeah, I think you're really rating us uh, highly there. At least I listen to him. You don't even listen, Josh. I sometimes I do. 
I listen <laughs> while we're doing it, right? I'm listening now. I'm listening to what you have to say. Okay, Josh. This type of lack of introspection is why you're never on the can jury. Mm, someday, someday I'll get there. Maybe, maybe when they start adding seven-year-olds to the jury. <laughs> have you been, you've been on film festival juries though, right? Like 48 hour film project or something like that? Um, uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know about that. I think I was on the jury for the jury for our uh, our friend Chad Clinton Freeman's Polygrind Film Festival one year, if you can call that a jury. Uh, yeah, I, I've I've judged submissions, I think, or or whatever in film festivals before. But uh, Chad, God love him, but uh, Polygrind is no can. But this should, should play at something like Polygrind. You know, you got all these like horror movies and splatter movies. This uh, I found uh, quite horrific. Yeah, it, I mean, it has some horror elements to it that we'll probably talk about. Uh, so, Jason, you know, you're not actually, a, and not, I, both of us, you know, we're not in, in bad company here, really, with critics who, uh, from what I found, were not necessarily that into it. Uh, but Janet Maslin in The New York Times did like the movie. She said, Maurice Piala directs in an ordinary-looking style, yet he approaches filmmaking in an extremely unconventional way. That paradox is more apparent than ever in Under the Sun of Satan, the film that won this year's top prize at the Cannes Film Festival and was roundly booed for doing so. When Mr. Piala approaches more psychological subjects, his deceptively straightforward manner and his ability to suspend judgment can have the look of naturalism, though his scrutiny is so keen that it becomes extraordinarily penetrating over a period of time. But Under the Sun of Satan is about faith, and it's a more difficult, mysterious film in every way. Even so, Mr. Piala has employed as plain a directorial style as ever, so the miraculous, the visionary, and the diabolical fuse here in a film that grapples simply and powerfully with the unknown. You know, I when I was watching this, I thought uh, back to our uh, Enigma of Casper Hauser episode, right? And mm -hmm. um, again, we're talking, you know, the European countrysides, a lot of talking as opposed to a lot of action. And I just felt that, like, you know, looking at something like, and it's a, you know, a, a a, another downtrodden movie uh, can be difficult to watch. But I thought that had so much more dynamic elements to it than this one did so uh, uh maslin and i uh, you say i agree with the critics josh but not maslin not maslin no, not no, maslin no. but we'll get to we'll get to it believe me um, but yeah i i agree with you though i i thought of casper hauser as well and i think that movie is so much more engaging there's so much more liveliness to it. I mean, as we uh, saw in your excellent impression, you know, Bruno S <laughs> yeah. gives this 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 sort of live wire performance, whereas Gerard Depardieu here is so subdued. I mean, and I'm sure this is on purpose. I'm sure that's what Pila wants, but he's so like colorless in his performance that it's it it drains the life out of you as you're watching the movie. I think you could say that for everyone in this movie. Yeah, I mean, Sandrine Bonaire, that character, you know, she she kind of wails and thrashes around a lot. She has a bit more energy to her, but uh, it, it, it gets kind of tiresome. I think. They're, they're not really layered, I would say, right? Yeah, I agree right. with you. Tiresome is a good word for it. And this is not to, you know, like bash these actors. We know they're two of the most, especially Depardieu is one of the highest grossing film actors in French history, one of the most awarded. And Bonaire has a storied career. This one... Uh, just doesn't work for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I did uh, watch another PLA film with Gerard Depardieu from 1980 called Lulu. That's kind of more what she's describing. It's a contemporary story, and it's also kind of austere. But the characters have much more vibrant emotional lives. And I wasn't really crazy about that film, but I could engage with it more because I could feel like I understood the characters more. I think we appreciate your service, Josh. Thank you. So uh, here's someone you can agree with. Hal Hinson in the Washington Post said, here's your choice. You can spend however many dollars it takes to see Maurice Pialas under the son of Satan, or you can stay at home and hit yourself over the head with a hammer. <laughs> the pain caused by under the son of Satan, which, by the way, stars Gerard Depardieu as a tortured Catholic priest and Sandrine Bonaire as basically a nutcase, is less extreme but gnawing and prolonged at a low-grade level through interminable scene after scene in which actors run through page after page of dialogue, 
all about characters you have no previous knowledge of or events that are equally obscure. I, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, hit, he hit the nail on the head, if you will, with his, with his words, with his word hammers, right? So, but um, just to say something, you know, uh, these kind of walking and talking movies, I love a lot of them. The Before series we talked about, I mean, we covered Smiley Face, which wasn't my favorite, but that's kind of one of them. Uh, I, I'm all for these type of movies. Rye Lane this year was a good one, but obviously different genre, right? Yeah, but, those are all kind of romance or comedy. Not, none of that I'm, going on. But in I'm just stuff. saying, like, okay, well, so Dave gave a, gave a great example on his letterbox, which you can find at Gopher Jason. Um, <laughs> but Dave compared it to uh, First Reform, the Paul Schrader movie. And uh, uh, that was, I think, for all of us, one of the best movies of the year it came out, like a top five, probably for, for us. Or it's just an amazing movie. And that, again, is another one similar in theme and uh, a little more action, but not much. But um, I think there's this one just it, it just falls so flat from scene one on. Yeah, I mean, I think First Reformed is a great example, a comparison, and I am sure that Paul Schrader is influenced by Pila in general and by this film. I thought of First Reformed and other recent Paul Schrader movies. I mean, The Card Counter has a lot of similar elements to it as well. Um, these kind of tortured, the man in a room movies, as Schrader calls them, you know, about these tortured uh, guys. And I agree. I loved First Reformed. I didn't really care for The Card Counter, but I think Schrader has a more dynamic style going on and more character insight here. And I mean, I wonder if part of it is because it's based on this novel that is probably essentially just like an allegory and maybe isn't even concerned with whether the characters are feel like real people. And maybe that's difficult to translate to a film. I mean, Hinson in that review is talking about the length of the scenes. And to me, it was less about if the scenes were um, overly long and more how overly wrought they were, you know, it, it just felt like we had the same conversation in the last scene and the last scene and the last scene. And it just felt like one boring, depressing straight line all the way through spoiler alert. I didn't like the movie. Yeah. So uh, not as much as Hal Henson, who, by the way, spends almost all of his review uh, describing uh, how to go buy a hammer. <laughs> um, that I left out. How do you do that, Josh? According to I, Hal Hinson, he tells you the price of it and what kind of store you should go to, and it's that's pretty ridiculous. good. That's pretty exciting. To, you know, uh, and Josh, you and I are uh, uh, writers uh, of in print, uh, which still exists in some cases, and I've definitely done some reviews where, like, I just didn't engage with whatever I was reviewing, and I had to come up with a creative way to do it. And uh, those are those are fun risks to take. And sometimes they pay off. Yeah, sometimes they do. But uh, I tried to stick to his comments on the actual movie. So uh, Hilary Mantle in The Spectator in the UK was not a fan, but she uh, engaged a little more directly with the film. She said, at the core of this enigmatic film is the priest's question to Mouchette. Why did sin seem worth the trouble to you? The devil is just a man you may meet on the road. His lures are routine ones. Every sinful action has been performed before you by someone else. You cannot therefore distinguish yourself through evil, much less free yourself. Too much of this is conveyed to us through limp aphorisms, which sound little better in French. The film is absorbing, and Depardieu is as good as ever, but if we are to be presented with such a generous account of the inner life, we do need an exterior context that is better defined. There are a few terrifying moments and a few silly ones, but throughout, there is an air of something being kept back, something about these people's motivations that we ought to know, rather as if the story had been started in the middle. Right. What's all this then? Man, so many great accents yeah. in this episode. Just, just going for it. Uh, she's, <laughs> she's got a little a, she's cockney. A, she's a Bobby. She's a London Bobby who was hired to... Uh, <laughs> a little cockney. A Maybe Henry Higgins could work on her uh, enunciations yeah. with her. Uh, I, I agree. I mean, we come in and the first thing we hear is like uh, Gerard Depardieu, you know, I am so uh, tortured. I have so much turmoil in my mind. Right. And it's like it's that's kind of where it opens. And you're like trying to play catch up with it. And then you catch up very quickly. And then you're way ahead of the movie for the rest of the time. Yeah, it is very disjointed. And I mean, it's interesting to me that it got nominated for that Caesar Award for best editing 
because to me, I thought the editing was so confusing and maybe that's deliberate, but like the first time it cuts from Gerard Depardieu in the church, kind of uh, giving uh, communion, the communion wafers. And then all of a sudden, like extremely abruptly, we see Mouchette, Sandrine Bonaire, kind of like walking into frame and it almost looks like she's in the church, but then you realize we're somewhere else. And then for the next like 20 minutes, we're just hanging out with her and her lovers. And it's like, who are these people? And how did we get here? And how much time has passed? And then suddenly, boom, we're back in the church with Gerard Depardieu. And it was very jarring. I got a similar impression. Here's another spoiler. Uh, after uh, Mouchette kills herself, and I'm like, wait, are are they in her house? Are they in her apartment? Now we're in the church. Like, it just, there wasn't clear delineation of the sets. And that's not just an editing problem. That's a problem with the direction. Right. And I mean, I do think it's possible that that is deliberate to kind of keep you off guard or whatever, but it does make it hard to follow and make it feel like you're missing something that's important. You know what I missed? Joy. Hmm. Well, Because I didn't we'll, have joy watching this film, Josh. We'll, we'll, we'll get some joy later on, I'm sure, in, uh, in future episodes. Um, <laughs> anything else you want to say about the background of this film, Jason? Uh, the background of this film, uh, as you mentioned, Josh, you uh, you watched Lulu, uh, which you did not think was quite a Lulu. But this was those are two of the four films that Depardieu did with Piola. So, yeah, yeah, that uh, features Depardieu as well as Isabelle Huppert, who we've talked about a couple times. It was a 1980 film. So around the same time she would make Heaven's Gate, which, of course, uh, we we devoted an episode to. And again, yeah, that's a contemporary story. It's set in Paris in the present day. It's about this kind of self-destructive romance. And it has a lot more energy to it, even though I found it sort of tedious. And he is uh, Pila, although I don't think that comes across really in this film, but certainly in Lulu, he's compared often to John Cassavetes, who we've also talked about, right. and who I didn't particularly care for. And Lulu definitely feels very Cassavetes-esque. So um, I assume... Jason, you had not seen other Pila films. No, Josh, and I don't plan on it anytime soon. Not to say I wouldn't watch any other ones, but uh, I did not like... Uh, uh, there's nothing that engaged me to the point where I was like, I got to dig deeper on this guy. Right. And and Dave, you uh, you as well were not yes. a Pila expert? Same over here. Nope. Don't know anything about him. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'd be interested in seeing more, but I'm not rushing out. Let's say that. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll rush back and get to more of our general thoughts on Under the Sun of Satan. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we are talking about the Cannes Film Festival Palm d'Or winner Under the Sun of Satan from filmmaker Maurice Pila, which we didn't care for, it seems like. So Jason, you, you, you've been quite negative, and, and I don't disagree with you, but is there anything that you did like about this film? The French countryside looks lovely, Josh. I think I would like to go on a tour and eat some wine, drink some cheese, and uh, just, just have a nice time exploring. Maybe go truffle hunting, find a pig that can lead me through there, and just really get in touch with uh, historical French countryside nature like nature josh i like nature mm-hmm. good food mm-hmm. maybe meet satan along the way <laughs> did you did you as you were watching this uh when those two met d- did you recognize that to be satan or did you just think it was a dude uh trying to give him the old the uh the old onesie twosie <laughs> <laughs> jason's euphemism there or something um no not at first and i don't think you're necessarily meant to realize it at first yeah at first he just seems like a kind of a weird guy along the road and then definitely at a certain point i was like oh this he's sort of propositioning the priest it seems like and then he says oh we can go rest in my hut and and i definitely thought at that point oh yeah he's gonna put the moves on him and he does he kind of kisses him on the mouth as the priest is is lying down and is exhausted. And that's kind of where I thought that was going. But then uh, he's like, hey, I'm Satan. And, and then I knew he was Satan because he said he was. Hmm. You didn't think he was just trying to 
be like, hey, you know, like Paul Abdul says, opposites attract. So if you're a priest, then I'm Satan. And uh, maybe I could MC Scat Cat all over you. Is that what you thought? <laughs> I didn't really. Uh, I, I I was so disengaged at this point. I was just like, ah, oh, it's just the dude trying to bang that poor dude. And uh, yeah, but it's, um, you know, he, he, for Satan, he wasn't really uh, that evil. He showed him a shortcut. And uh, he kissed him on the mouth. And then when Depardieu didn't want to do it, he was like, all right, we're not going to do it. Right. That is true. I mean, I think it's more about the internal struggle of that character, maybe. The whole thing was the internal struggle of the Depardieu character and the internal struggle of the viewer to get through the film, Josh. <laughs> That's an important <laughs> thematic element of this movie. <laughs> Which is what he, he was going for, was how do I make my audience miserable. You know, that's probably not inaccurate. <laughs> I think that's kind of what the aim of this here is. Not that he wants people to dislike having seen the film, but I think he probably does want to evoke these feelings of, of despair that the character himself is feeling and get the audience to feel that. What did you enjoy about the movie? Not a lot, really. Um, <laughs> I yeah, the countryside does look nice. I I agree. Yeah, but you would eat some the, cheese with me in the French countryside. Yeah, I like cheese. Yeah, uh, um, that's right. And I like Satan. So there there was that. <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, I think like you said, both of these main actors are good actors. You know, we've talked about Gerard Depardieu before in the last Metro, which he was very good in, and I just didn't even really engage with their performances. I mean, he is so subdued. And it was interesting watching this right after Lulu, where he gives a very big performance and he plays this character who's like kind of a, a criminal and he's very passionate and he's always, um, you know, lusting after women. And, I mean, that's and what he's at his best, right? Like if you go through his career, we want he's a big performer a lot of the times. And that's what I think that's what made him so successful is he's so good at that. Right. And this is I mean, maybe this was an instance of him wanting to try something different or play against type or whatever. but. He's really so far back. And I think you have to get a sense of this character's internal struggle, right? His, his crisis of faith when he's confronted with Satan and has to face the idea that maybe Satan has won, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the big thing there toward the end that he says, you know, Satan has us in his hold. It's not God. God has been vanquished and Satan has taken control. And that's a big deal, one would think especially if you're a priest and it just doesn't really come across. Yeah. The movie is not called under the son of God. No, no, it is not. But um, I mean, I keep going back to first reform because all of these themes are laid out so clearly. And I think we see a much more um, engaging and um, kind of fully fleshed out performance from Ethan Hawke. And of course the writing and I just, this maybe something was lost in translation, even though we had subtitles watching this. So I don't know how much could have been, but I just think that's such a better piece dealing with so many similar elements. Right. No, I agree with you on that. And, and I, I wonder, it could be, you know, subtitles don't necessarily always, I mean, someone has to do the translating and they're not always great. And I mean, there were a lot of dialogue scenes here where they're talking about these theological concepts. And I'm like, they're just saying a bunch of words that don't seem to really mean anything. And I do wonder if maybe there's a clearer way for that to be expressed in a translation. I don't know. Right. And I just felt like they kept making the same points over and over again. It was one long conversation that, do you ever get on the phone with someone, Josh, or have a conversation with someone? And then you're like, or maybe your friend's talking to someone and like, there is a clear endpoint of the conversation. You're like, oh, this co this conversation's over, and then the other person just keeps talking, and you're like, what what is going on? We this conversation ended like six sentences ago. Why are you continuing to say this? Like, I know people who do that, and th this is what that movie felt like to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I can I can see that it it did. I mean, there's there's a sort of a progression of a plot, right? I mean, Gerard Depardieu is having this crisis of faith, and He's going to be sent away to another parish. He goes on this sort of uh, journey. Walkabout? Through the, right, a walkabout through the countryside. He meets Satan. And then he just 
goes back. I guess these are the things that were sort of unclear, but he ends up back with his his mentor slash boss or whatever, who is played by Maurice Pila himself. And meanwhile, Mouchette is uh, talking to her various older lovers. She's 16 and she's been having affairs with these two older men. And then she kills one of them. And Accidentally? Uh, kind of, but then she seems into it. Like it oh, she's like definitely down. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> she does it by accident. And then she's like, you know what? I'm glad I did that. I mean, there was two shocking moments in this movie. That was one of them. And then the other one is towards the end, they, um, this family summons for uh, Dunnison, which is Depardieu's character. Um, and they all think he's like special and he's got these kind of supernatural powers. And they said, their son has come down with meningitis and they need him to save him. And they get there and he's dead. And um, Depardieu like walks away and he's like, well, I think I could help him, but you know, what's the point? And then he's like, no, you got to help him. So they go back in and he holds uh, the kid over his head and he gives another speech about religion. And then the kid opens his eyes. And that's the other big shocking moment. The piece, Right. Because I think up to that point, like you were saying about the Satan character, you could say, oh, that's not really Satan. That's just some like weird, crazy guy he met on the road or whatever, right? And he doesn't necessarily really speak to God. He himself is just kind of losing it or whatever. But he goes in that room and the kid is dead. And he takes the kid and holds him up above his head. And the kid like literally comes back to life. You know, at that point, you have to acknowledge that, okay, there's some supernatural thing going on. And I... I'm thinking of another movie we covered, uh, Sound of My Voice, which was your pick. And then we kind of have these kind of murky layers of like, is she or isn't she, right? And then at the end, they have this great moment where it's like, wait, is she? And um, I think that um, we needed a little more of that because after this happens, it just goes back to what it was yet again. Yeah, I mean, and obviously I picked that movie in that season, which I love that movie. And and. All that, the idea of all that, I find really fascinating. Movies like this, where it's like something supernatural may be happening, or perhaps the character is just losing their mind and it's mysterious and ambiguous. I usually find that really fascinating. And I did not here find it fascinating. Again, I found it more confusing because of the way that things are so disjointed just in the basic progression of events and how much time has passed, for example. I mean, at one point late in the film, after. Denison comes back from his walkabout and his boss is like, okay, you're done. You're going to go hang out with these monks for a while and then we'll see. And then it cuts to some time later and he's not with the monks. He's just like a priest in a new parish. And right. I thought, okay, so did he go like do his penance with the monks? And now he's this, how much time has passed? It was very confusing. And you're, you keep bringing up like these time passages and, um, you know, I didn't, read it as that. I did, I just thought it was like, okay, this is the next thing and this is the next thing. And maybe I'm completely wrong, but it wasn't clear to me that there were these long time passages at all. Right. Well, I think that's the thing is that it wasn't clear. Did time pass or did it not? Did time pass and that thing happened off screen or did time not pass and they didn't do that thing? I don't know. <laughs> and And I feel like these things were important. They spent like a whole scene talking about it and then they just didn't do it. And you brought these monks up who uh, Denison brings up at the beginning. And then his boss is like, no, no, that's too easy. Everyone wants to go hang out with the monks. Right? Like, right. What a what a prize. Everyone wants to just chill with these monks. And then he's like, all right. And then the boss's boss is like, no, you're going to the monks. And it would have been interesting to see these monks at some point, you know, especially since we're dealing with so many themes of isolation and questioning the major points of life like what is it about these monks that uh is so attractive or so necessary to these characters to get to that point or not get to that point right i was curious to see that as well and then we don't and he's just with this other parish and the people seem to really love him and you know cherish his advice or whatever and that's when he gets called away to go deal with the sick boy but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things like that that I feel like were set up and then were anticlimactic. I mean, including the idea of him and Mouchette kind of confronting each other, right? Because we have all this buildup with her, with her two lovers, and she kills the guy, and she talks to the other lover who says, you're, you know, no one's going to 
arrest you for this because it was ruled a suicide and all this stuff. And then finally they meet on the road. And there's another supernatural moment where Denison is like, I know what you've done and you know, you need to repent or whatever. And I thought it was going to be this kind of climactic, you know, not battle per se, but like uh, an exchange for her soul or whatever. And then she just goes home and kills herself. Right. And uh, Denison doesn't do anything to bring her back. But again, that's a confusing scene because it's like the mom is there and then like they're at the the kind of foot, the the foot of the church. I'm like, is did she kill herself at her home? Do they live in a church? What is happening here? Right? Like, I mean, it's I not think very Dennis clear. On, like carried her body to the church. And then again, you go back to that point of the editing where we see like no progression of that. And like even an exterior shot or something like there was nothing that made it clear. Also, the idea of like a priest who can who has some type of empathic powers who can look into your soul and be like, hey, I know what you've done. This is what you got to do. Like, that's kind of a cool character, right? It could be in this like more dark supernatural type thing. Or you could see like USA put on like uh, Tony Shalhoub as like this priest, right? Like who's helping people come to terms with whatever they need to come to terms with. But he is also a monk. Ha <laughs> Bravo. Bravo. Um, but none of that, th- this again is just so many loose ends and, um, and that's okay. Like in some places where we're leaving things open to interpretation, but here just none of it adds up to anything. I feel like. Right. Like I said, the idea of it being ambiguous or whatever, I generally like, and you having to kind of parse it yourself, but I think you need some basic narrative coherence in order to, you know, you need to have understood the events so that you can then interpret them. And, and I feel like that just doesn't happen here. So, but Dave, I think you kind of liked it. Eh, I I was mixed on it as well. I, I agree with you guys on a lot of like the confusing aspects of it. I was wondering though, what you guys thought, you know, as obviously this wasn't that long ago, 1987, but like just the idea of a uh, a priest grappling with all of this like i wonder if it was a little bigger of you know an original idea at the time and like i was thinking of another movie we covered ordinary people where we talked about how like oh therapy like you know how crazy and like i wonder if like this was more of a a heavy unique thing at the time well you got to remember it's based on a book from 1926 mm, so sure. it goes all the way back to there i mean yeah. right and, and uh, those Bresson movies that that were adapted from other Bernanos books are from like the 50s and 60s, I think. Yeah, yeah. So what we're saying, Dave, is you're totally wrong. Right. I, I think I, think, I, think I am. I'm, I'm chopping all my stars off this thing. <laughs> recurring theme throughout literature. Also, I'll tell you what, Josh, and, yeah. and this is maybe the most insightful point I'll make today. Okay. T- twice in the movie, once with Denison and once with Mouchette, uh, they come home or to wherever or it's early in the morning and they have to leave and they say they they haven't had breakfast and the counterpart in this scene says you must be hungry let me make you some coffee coffee as i'm drinking right now is fine but it never fills you up that's not breakfast and i don't on know keto it does on keto it does <laughs> so you're saying the, yeah, this the was, secret theme of this film yeah, is keto. yeah. so maybe the que- maybe the themes of the movie dave weren't new but maybe this keto diet this was yeah. proto keto is that what you're saying yeah this is an intermittent fasting uh breakthrough this movie Absolutely. i mean i i intermittently fast at this point in time but if i wake up i i need to eat you know if i if i wake up in the morning which i often do just sometimes in the afternoon <laughs> I mean, I, I will say that that could be an instance where the translation isn't capturing the literal words that they're saying. I, I speak French a little, and sometimes I can catch stuff like that. I didn't notice that in that scene. I do think in one of those, the housekeeper says, uh, you need to put something in your stomach, which if you take that literally could include coffee. But you know, usually that means you need to eat. So you're, you're right on that. Croissant. Croissant. That's uh, that's our insight about a French movie. Omelette. Awesome. <laughs> Salad. <laughs> Salad. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right. I think we've I think we've really gone through this. So uh, do we want to rate this out of five? Uh, the What is the thing that called that he whips himself with? Oh, uh, I mean, that's called self-flagellation, but I don't right. know what the thing is. Uh, the thingy. What is the that fi- called? We should look it up. 
I don't know. I know the the the, uh, the hair shirt, which is the the garment that he wears that like uh, is abrasive on your skin. But I'm not sure what the thing is called that he whips himself with. Yeah. I've seen it in other. By movies. the way, watching this film was akin to self-flagellation. <laughs> <laughs> That's a quote. That's something. Put that on the poster, right? Me and, the me Caesar laminated Hinson. poster. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, out of five self-flagellating items, uh, sure. I gave it two, and um, that's only because if I give it less than two, I'm really digging to the doldrums of stuff that we've covered, and uh, it's a little better than that, but not much. Yeah, I I wanted to like it more, um, but I'm going to also give it two out of five. I mean, I appreciate the ambition of something like this, but to me, it just doesn't, it falls short. So Dave, how would you rate it? Uh, I went with three on Letterboxd. I think I'm dropping it at a half, though. Two and a half. I'll still go higher than you guys because it's not like I hated it, but uh, it is it is pretty damn boring. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. So we'll come back and talk about the legacy of Under the Son of Satan. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we have been talking about Cannes Film Festival, Palm d'Or winner, Under the Sun of Satan from director Maurice Pila. And as we said, he was a major French director. Uh, I feel like maybe unlike a lot of the new wave figures that we've talked about, he didn't get to be quite as well known in the U.S. And I don't know if he counts as part of the French new wave, but he did start making films around that same time. And I think has been acknowledged as like a major voice in French film. But a after this movie, he made only two more films, uh, Van Gogh in 1991, a biopic, of course, about Vincent Van Gogh, and his final film in 1995, Le Garçou, which did also star Gerard Depardieu, and he died in 2003. And Jason is not going to watch any more of his films. Probably not. But I mean, not, Lulu would have been probably the one that I would have picked. Uh, he did make his uh, he made his first movie in 1969, uh, The Naked Childhood. You want to pronounce that? Les Enfants Nus? Is that it? No, that's not bad, actually. Uh, and he was 43 when he made his first movie, so that's pretty cool. And um, produced by Truffaut, which was also pretty cool, I think. Um, and a lot of the uh, Josh and please go into detail. Uh, he often deals with the petty bourgeois. Why don't you tell us about the petty bourgeois? Well, that's, I think, the characters. That's not this film, certainly. But I think that's the characters in, in Lulu, who are these kind of upper middle class people filled with ennui. And I mean, the plot of that film basically is Isabelle Huppert is married to this guy who's kind of an asshole. And then she goes to a nightclub and she meets Gerard Depardieu, who's also kind of an asshole. And she's like, ah, I'm, I'm going to leave my husband and go with you instead. And then they have a lot of sex and yell at each other a lot. And I mean, that's pretty much the film. You did not define the petty bourgeois at all. So it's, it's like it's, an artisan class. They have comfort, but they're not rich and they don't seem to have any mobility, you know. So I, don't, I wouldn't even call them upper middle class, just kind of middle class people who deal with the middle class issues. Right. I mean, I think in that movie, she's meant to be more upper middle class. But yeah, exactly what you're saying. They, they just kind of don't have anything. They've got a lot of ennui they've got a lot of uh, dissatisfaction and there's nowhere for them to go and that's part of you know the allure is that she goes with the Gerard Depardieu character Lulu who is not upper middle class he's kind of a, a petty criminal and he's volatile and he's sometimes violent but there's that bad boy allure to him he wears mm. a leather jacket in this film yeah um, he's got that's how you know hair that's how you know he's got an edge to him Josh right mm -hmm. exactly Right. So I think that's uh, that's what's going on in there. But it is very Cassavetes-ish in that it's a lot of the characters kind of yelling their feelings is what, the way I felt it was. Yeah. Um, cool. Good. I don't yeah, think I'm sure. going to catch You're, it anytime soon. No, no, I don't think you would enjoy it. I think you would enjoy it more than Under the Son of Satan, but probably not enough to actually want to watch it. Well, I gave this two stars, Josh. So I think I'd enjoy many things more than Under the Son of Satan. Um, we mentioned Depardieu, of course, in our last Metro episode, still working second highest grossing film star in French cinema history, 17 Caesar nods and two wins, including for the last Metro. And, uh, he's doing some voice work, some movie work, you know, just, uh, still making 
Hagen Films. And um, yeah, that's what we're going to talk about because we're focusing on him as a professional. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, not making films in the U.S. anymore. I mean, he did have a period of English language films, including uh, before this, the most recent Gerard Depardieu performance I had seen was in 102 Dalmatians that I had mm. to watch for an article. Um, I mean, but, green card, you got a Golden Globe, the Peter Weir movie, Golden Globe, nod for uh, best uh, actor in a musical or comedy. Yeah, I mean, and that was like 30 years ago or whatever. I, I think the thing you're alluding to, the allegations against him, keep him working in Europe. But he is definitely still working, as you said. And Josh, we cannot talk about Gerard Depardieu without bringing up my father, the hero. Oh, no! <laughs> have you actually seen that movie? <laughs> yeah, of course. When I was a kid. Oh, okay, I have not. It's a, I mean, there was a, it's a remake. He, he starred in both the French language version and the English language version. And that shows the range he's got right there. He can, sure does. But I just, I mean, that's a classic, right? You remember that commercial where he's like water skiing and it looks like he's going to hit a like a buoy or something, some type of seafaring object. And he just yells, oh, no, <laughs> I do remember that commercial. I never saw either version of the film, but uh, oh, no, really, it made a strong impression. I hope you did that in the last Metro episode. Too. I don't recall. <laughs> I probably I did. did. Yeah. I probably did. What else? I mean, that's what you say about him. Uh, Sandrine Bonaire, also big time uh, actor in France, uh, director and screenwriter, 40 movies or more. She won the Caesar for uh, Most Promising Actress for Ano Semours in 1983. Which is a Maurice Pilat film. There you go. And for Best Actress for Vagabond in 1985. Yeah, she, I mean, unlike Depardieu, hasn't really worked, I don't think, outside of France or not in English language films. But she was recently in the French film Happening which got a lot of international attention. It's a very harrowing uh, abortion drama that I did see. And, oh, yeah, from the about the 60s, right? Yeah, yeah, set during the 60s. So, you know, that's something that, that kind of reached a more international audience. If I'm not mistaken, she made, maybe directed a uh, documentary about Marianne Faithful. I feel like that would hmm. be something I'd like to see. Yeah, that does sound like something you'd like to see. Thank you, Josh. You're welcome. Um, I thought it was interesting... Uh, Jan Didet, who is the editor of this film and also plays one of Mouchette's lovers. I thought that was kind of a weird, you know, double double role for him. And he's he's been a very successful editor and, and doesn't work as much as an actor. But I just thought that was kind of surprising that, uh, you know, not not a common, you know, double position for people in films. Yeah, so he won his Caesar for Police in uh, 2011 with Lil Valdez as his co-editor, and he edited a lot for Truffaut. But you're right, Josh, a lot of these actors, like, I, I mean, Pila, obviously, and uh, the horse dealer Jean-Christophe Christophe, Jean -Christophe Bouvet is another. A lot of these kind of like, they're actors, they're directors, they're writers, they're like, uh, you know, uh, multitaskers uh, in the film industry. Right. And I think the performances here are not, I mean, they're not the kind of thing where you're like, oh, that's not an actor. You know, that's, that's Pilar's friend. And Pilar himself is perfectly solid as the, uh, the, the senior priest. Yeah. I thought he did a good job, but, um, they're just, again, they're all like playing the, the, the same note over and over again, which is yes. fine if you're Philip Glass because he gets it done, but, um, not here for this film. No, maybe Philip Glass could have been cast in this as well. I'd like that. Yeah. You know, we talked about Paul Schrader. I, I think you can definitely see influence of, of this film and Pila in general on his work. I also thought about Abel Ferrara, who has made some of these weird abstract dramas about religious crises. Uh, Mary, which I recall seeing at the Cinevegas Film Festival and a recent film he made with Willem Dafoe called Siberia, which are just as tedious to watch as this movie, really. But um so Definitely, the, I think, an influence on him. The takeaway is to watch more Paul Schrader movies, I think. Yeah, I mean, I some of those Schrader movies to me are also kind of uh, a little too much, but there are a lot of good Schrader movies. And certainly, I think we can agree that First Reformed is very good. Right. And, you know, uh, it's interesting that we're bringing him up because we're talking about him as a writer-director. But even if you go back to, like, Taxi Driver and the stuff he was writing in the 70s, a lot of that those themes are there in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, and I think that too. I, I would imagine that Pila influences him going all the way back to that film. Not this, of course, from from then, but earlier Pila films. I think it's it's probably likely that they influenced him. Anything else you want to say about the legacy of this film, Jason? Oh, brother! 
<laughs> Jason's just going to do some old timey vaudeville sound effects as his reactions to this film. <laughs> I think that covers it, Josh. I think so. So that is Under the Sun of Satan. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Uh, join our religious crisis online and on social media. Yeah, Josh, uh, I'm at Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. Eat this comedy. That's a website. Go for Jason on Letterboxd. The crisis is why aren't more of you following? I'll follow back. I like learning about what you guys think about movies, too. We're at Awesome Movie Year or Awesome Movie Year on uh, Facebook or on Instagram at Awesome Movie Year. Uh, but if you don't want to go to Awesome Movie or you can go to Awesome Movie Pod on X slash Twitter or slash whatever. Who cares? Uh, and then AwesomeMovieYear.com, Josh. That's All thing. those things. Uh, you can find some old things from me at JoshBellHatesEverything.com. I am at JoshBellHatesEverything on Facebook and at SignalBleed on X Twitter and at SignalBleed on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod and check me out on Letterboxd by David Rosen. Jason, what are we talking about in our next episode? Josh, it's our documentary pick, the heralded film known as Sherman's March. I am very excited to talk about that. So tune in next time for Sherman's March. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.